Okay, good morning. Everybody looks a little bit brighter now. <laughs> so. Living ransomed. So this actually came out of, was after the last men's meeting, Byron and I were talking for a while, and one thing we talked about is this idea of simplicity. Sometimes we talk about simplicity or you used to talk about plainness, talking about Christian lifestyle. And Byron's like, we don't talk about that very much anymore. And that got me thinking, and my mind went to this passage. I quickly realized the passage is a lot more than simply what you might call plainness or simplicity or whatever. Uh, it puts it in context. Um, I'm going to need a couple volunteers at a few places um, throughout. So, I'll need one young man who needs to be able to look sad and then look happy. And that's about the only part of the job description. How many volunteers now, or do I have to just draft somebody when I get there? And I'll need a couple people to read, but I'll assign those passages when I get a little closer. Um, let's begin with, I'm going to read 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 10. Um, why don't we stand as well? Um, I'll be reading from the ESV. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And you can be seated. Um, We were talking a little bit about this in our men's group, and Chad is just like, this is so full of everything, uh, which the passage is full, and we won't say, certainly won't say everything that we could say from here, but I do want to, I do want to look at the main pieces and, you know, living life as someone who is ransomed by God, ransomed is maybe a less familiar word, but we will spend a bit of time on that. 
That's where we need our, our sad and happy volunteer, by the way, in a little bit. Um, so let's start with this idea. It says, this is good. Let me flip my chart, actually. OK. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So if you have it open, let's think a little bit about what's he talking about? What is he saying will, will please God? Um, what is it and why? Um, so that's verse 3. And my question goes back there. Is Paul saying, well, making prayers is good and will please God, so let's pray. Um, or is he saying, if we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, um, this is pleasing in the sight of God. And I don't know if the text exactly says which. I think it's both. I think it's a picture of a praying people. I think it's a picture of people that are godly and dignified. And if you're like me, the word dignified may trip you up a little bit. It's like, what does this mean <laughs> describing us? Um, we'll try to dig into that a little bit. Suffice it to say, it doesn't mean you have to show up in church in a tuxedo. <laughs> now, can you be dignified if you show up to church barefoot? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. Nobody else around here would do that, would they? <laughs> Above the age of 20. <laughs> oh, I have. <laughs> Um, but thinking about it, there's about three pieces there. There's, there's praying. There's the idea of a peaceful and quiet life. And there's this phrase, godly and dignified in every way. Uh, we'll explore the words um, a bit later. And why are they pleasing to God? And the first thing to say, well, okay, they're always pleasing to God if it's prayer, if it's good character. Um, but as I look at verse 5, or verse 4, it says they're pleasing to God who desires all people to be saved. And he keeps going. So if this peaceful and quiet life is pleasing to God because God desires people to be saved, what does that tell us? Um, and I think it's, it's worth camping there a little bit. Um, we think often about how persecution is good for the church, or we hear those words, right? Well, the church does best when they're persecuted. And God uses persecution. Or we talk about opportunities from the gospel that come because of wars and famines and catastrophes. And that is true. Sometimes God uses those times for the gospel to get started in a place where there's been a disaster. Um, 
But a peaceful and quiet life actually talks about political stability and about not always being hunted and on the run. And I see this as a reminder, like our prayers, um, the way we work with people. Yes, God will use persecution. Yes, God will use wars. But those certainly aren't things we're praying for. Right? We're praying for rulers that there is a place of political stability, you know, at least to the point where there's not gangs roaming the street and there's not civil war factions in front of you and where Christians aren't always on the run. And it says this is pleasing because God wants people to be saved. Um, not only that, but... Yes, we expect the world to disagree with us, right? And we expect to look different from the world, and we will see a lot of that in this passage. Um, but when it says we're godly and dignified in every way, that does speak to living the kind of life that, that will be recognized as honorable. doesn't mean everybody will agree with it. It doesn't mean it will be fashionable or put you in the up-and-coming set or the elite set, but recognized as something honorable. And that's also put as, as part of the conditions that please God, um, who wants people to be saved. Uh, we'll come back to some of the details, um, but notice in verse 4 to 7 the, the universals. And I said five universals. Some of them are obvious. Some of them are not quite so obvious. So if you have your Bibles open or your memories open, um, what are some of these universal statements in, in verses 4 to 7? There is one God. Why is that universal? Because there's only one God. <laughs> Good. Um, yes. So, desires. All saved. Right. And then there's one God. There is a ransom for all. Ransom for all. And there is one. Mediator. Okay, so. It is a continuation. Desires all to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know if I can fit it on there, but yes, it goes with the same universal all. 
one God and one mediator for the whole earth, a ransom for all. Now, the next universal is not technically or grammatically a universal, and it's maybe a little bit more hidden, um, but there is a piece in verse 7 that I think we should add as one of these universals because it underscores God's intention for salvation, underscores the universal nature. Yes. So specifically that word, the Gentiles or the nations. Well, that's going to be the end of this marker. I can use black. Gentiles, the nations. And for the Jews to say the nations was a reference to everybody outside. Um, so here, in talking about a life, we have God's intent with, this is to go everywhere. And in fact, that's why we're supposed to pray for kings and people of position. And why we're supposed to lead a certain life is, this is universal. All people, there's one God. Not ten. There's not regional gods or territorial gods. Not that count as true gods, anyhow. There is one mediator in Jesus Christ who is a ransom for all. And the outflow and proof of that is Paul and others sent as teachers of all the nations. The mystery that wasn't known in the Old Testament that all nations could be part of God's covenant. So this is expanding outward. Um, but living ransomed, let's think about this word ransom for a little bit. Here's where I need my volunteer. Do I have one yet? Ah, Carl, I was just going to pick you, so it's good you volunteered. Okay. So you're going to be Andronicus. So Andronicus is standing over here. He is very not so happy. Andronicus has been a slave for a long time. His parents were poor. They couldn't pay the bills, and a creditor eventually took Andronicus to pay his parents' bills, and he's been a slave. Now his master brought Andronicus out here and... He's standing in front of the slave market. He doesn't know what kind of master he's going to get next. But somebody comes up here and pays $73,000. And he tells Andronicus, you're coming with me. And within a year, we will have your papers signed for manumission so that you will be a free man and no longer a slave. So there's a literal definition of, of a ransom. 
can get different, used different ways in the Bible, but a ransom happens when you're under the power of somebody else. Under the power of a slave master. Of course, we think about it now in terms of like kidnapping situations where somebody's held under the power of a kidnapper, whatever. Um, even in the scripture, a nation held under the power of, of oppressors. And a ransom cost something. Uh, this is a big enough word and idea. I thought we should um, read a few other passages. So, um, Alan, if I could get you to read from Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 9 and 10, and Lynn, could you look up 1 Peter 1, um, 17 to 19? So, Alan, you can go ahead when you're ready. So again, the word in there, redeemed, redeemed or bought. Again, the same concept of a, a costly deliverance, but delivered from the power of something else. And again, people from all, everywhere, this is expansive. And Lynn, First um, Peter 1, uh, 17 to 19. Okay, so again, the word redeemed, ransomed. Um, and it says the ransom price wasn't just the, the $73,000, the gold or silver or whatever. Um, the blood of Christ. And what I has found especially interesting there in 1 Peter is what he said you were ransomed from. Um, the futile ways inherited from your ancestors. In other words, right, the patterns of sin, of how we live, how we act, um, that, well, one, there's sin in each of us, but they also get passed down from generation to generation. They're the pattern of life as we know it. Um, life without, without the Savior. Um, a ransom. And this becomes our identity um, in living as godly people. And to think about how the ransom becomes our identity. 
Um, so Andronicus here was freed. Now, at least for the, you know, we said we're going to have his paper signed within a year, but he remained a slave of the person who freed him for, for a time. And presumably, if that's a good relationship, it's going to remain in the kind of protection of that person, in the social circle of that person. I don't know. Um, but certainly when we apply it to ourselves and we say we're ransomed, well, we're still called slaves or servants. How many times do we go through the New Testament and, you know, the letter starts out, Paul, a slave of God or a servant of God or a bond servant of God or depending how much you want to soften up the <laughs> harsh language. Um, so we're freed, bought with a price. Um, but like I said in 1 Peter, you were bought with a price, so this is how you live. I have an identity of someone who, someone who belongs to God. Maybe you take that for granted. Maybe that's old news. Maybe that's something that needs to be put afresh because it, it puts your work and your life in perspective. Like, there's a way to live. There's work to do. But it's the identity of, of belonging to God and him commissioning us to do um, the work that we do. And that is a note we will come back to, especially at the end. The last phrase of our passage said, adorn yourself with good works. And so when we come to that passage at the end, I want to come back to that theme. That's because of your identity as someone who works for God and works with God. Um. Okay, here's my sort of outline of the passage um, of the life. We lead a life, a life of godliness and dignity. Um, the verses, verse 8 specifically illustrates that, says I want the men to do this and fleshes out that life. Um, 2 verses 9 through, and I just put a dash there because I quit reading in the middle of that passage because, well, there's not a three-hour sermon slot, so you need to quit somewhere. <laughs> um, Describes the same life, it's addressed to women, but most of these characteristics apply quite well to, to all of us. The women can look at the men's passage, the men can look at the women's passage, and it's not like there's not like there's a difference in character. And then there are these exemplars later in First Timothy that flesh that life out a lot more. And we're not going to look at these exemplars except to note, just as they kind of use some of those things for notes to shed light up here a little bit. For example, why is women's clothing supposed to be like the overseer's character? And so on. Um, but I noticed that there's male and female 
exemplars given to, again, give us a pattern of, of life with God. Qualifications for overseers or the Old English word bishop, as well as for deacons, um, for the enrolled widows. Yeah, the discussion of widows in 1 Timothy 5, I do not have all sorted out. Maybe there's two groups of widows. I don't know. Suffice it to say that the one group, the enrolled widows, is definitely some sort of, you know, recognized role in the church that requires exemplary character. Um, and then in 312, the women. There's several interpretations of exactly who these women are. Your English Bible translations will probably, most of them will kind of encode into their translation one interpretation or the other. Fortunately, I don't have to talk about that because all we're doing is comparing the, the qualifications up here. Um, so if we first think first about some of these general things, the character of the ransom life um, in general, um, when it's described as peaceful and quiet, I think that's primarily asking God to provide those circumstances. Um, these are words of, of politics, are people abiding by the law and things running, around, running along smoothly, or is there war? Are there militias <laughs> vying for control? Are there uprisings and so on? And we're to pray against those things. They also speak to the fact that we're not engaged in trying to overthrow whatever government exists. Um, but living there as a certain kind of life, in all godliness and dignity, and I already said the word dignity gave me a little bit difficult. Okay, what, what is this? Um, so as I did a little bit of word study here, um, the terms are actually a, a pretty good... Pairing. Um, the first one speaks of someone who, someone who respects what is to be respected, somebody who honors what is honorable, and of course, the most honorable thing of all is God, so we tend to use godliness, someone who honors God, um, but related words can also refer to things like honoring parents. Um, as in a little bit, a little bit later in First Timothy, it says if a widow, you know, has children or grandchildren, let those children or grandchildren learn to show godliness to their family or to their household. And the term was actually, or related terms, were often used kind of honor for parents. Um, but again, primarily God, because God is. Supremely worthy of honor. Someone who shows respect or reverence. 
dignity, um, another term used um, in the King James, a different place, is gravity. Um, people use words like serious, venerable. Um, what was most helpful for me to see that this was kind of a correlative. Godliness speaks of showing respect and honor. Dignity speaks of being worthy of respect and honor. Um, was sometimes applied to pagan gods to illustrate their high status. Um, but also to people, as people worth honoring. Um, and that helps. That helps to illustrate it. We're people who give honor and people who are worthy of honor, is to describe uh, the overall picture of the Christian life. Um, if you like to play with words, and a set of words we wouldn't necessarily use, but you could say we are reverent and reverend. Now, not that you got that title from some church. Reverent in the sense of giving reverence or honor to what is due. Reverend in the sense of being one who inspires reverence. It sounds a bit strong for human beings, but that is part of the picture there. He captures that. And the rest of the passage, I think, we can see is kind of, okay. Well, what exactly do you have in mind by that, Paul? <laughs> and we can cash it out through um, these more specific words. I want the men in every place to pray without wrath or dissension, without wrath or wrangling. Um, holy hands, hands that don't kill people, to put it bluntly, hands that don't steal things. Hands that don't um, fill in the blank. Um, and there again, we're talking about prayers, the kinds of prayers that God will accept. Um, if you want a reference for this, um, Isaiah 1. It's Isaiah 1 goes through this whole long list. talks about people, you know, they're doing the things. They're lifting up hands. They're bringing the offerings. They're trying to approach God but your hands are full of blood. Um, so there again, a, a basic one. Um, let's tie this back to the whole um, ransom picture too, though. So ransom, Christ's costly work taking us from under the power of one master, which is sin, freeing us, making his, making us his, his slaves, giving us that identity. But, and this is Romans 6 if you want a reference, the freed slave can go back to the old master. Paul says, whichever master you're serving with your body, with your hands, that one is your master, which is a sober warning. You can be ransomed, but if you keep presenting your hands to the old master of sin and you use them to steal, kill, and destroy or whatever else, 
you can be re-enslaved by the old master. Uh, without wrath or dissension. Just a few words there. Um, just to notice that these are big things for the exemplars of Christian character, too, when it talks about talks about the overseer. Somebody who doesn't quarrel about words. Somebody who doesn't fight. Um, doesn't operate from wrath. Keeping his children in subjection with all, and it's actually the dignity word, with all dignity, with all um, honorableness. Um, not with anger and fighting, which leaves us a And the word dissension, there's various um, pieces going on there. It can mean doubting, um, as it's translated in the King James. I don't see that fitting very well in this, um, in this context. Uh, it actually is normally a positive word, referring to reasoning, discussion, and so on. Um, but here it's put as a negative, something we don't want. And I have to think about it. Why is discussion put as a negative? It's not because discussing something is a negative. It's because dis discussion can descend into fighting and quarreling and quibbling instead of an honest search for truth that can become, um, as Paul says somewhere else, wrangling about words. And that is not something that our reverend saints, that we want to be involved in as reverend saints. It's not the honorable, um, honorable and honoring um, way of handling those things. And our sisters get a little longer passage, but again, very little in there that is exclusive <laughs> to sisters. These speak of a Christian life. Um, I did put this in a slightly more clunky word order and slightly more clunky words um, just simply to capture the flow of the passage and some of the wordplay. So he says, likewise also I want the women in clothing of decorum, with modesty and self-control, to decorate themselves, not with this stuff, but with good works. Um, think about this pair first. Clothing of decorum to decorate. Now, the more traditional wording, say the ESV would say, in respectable clothing, you know, adorn yourselves in respectable clothing, or thinking in the King James, adorn yourselves in modest clothing. And those words work, but there's a bit of wordplay going on, which is why I did look slightly clunky, you know, can't say adorn yourself in adorning apparel but you can say decorate yourselves in decorous apparel or in a way that maintains decorum. Um, 
Okay, what do you think of when you think of the word cosmos? I promise this is related. <laughs> what is the cosmos? The world, just the earth? The universe and everything in it. So the word family used here gets us both our English term, the cosmos, and it gets us another English term, which you would not think from English is related, but it is related in the Greek etymology. Cosmetics. Okay. Anybody have an idea how to connect those two together? It is what we see. So as I understand it, the connection goes in the idea of the cosmos is ordered. It's beautiful. Um, and in fact, cosmos in Greek can itself refer to ornaments. Okay. Where is this going? We need to work this one through before you think I'm going off the deep end, which might be better than the shallow end, but anyhow. <laughs> um, so there's the root there of an order that's beautiful or an arrangement. And so the cosmos is seen as God's ordered thing. And when you have adorn here, so it very quickly gets defined as this is not piling on the bling. Um, adorn here speaks both of the clothing and especially of the entire person. Um, your life arranged in a, in a way that, that fits with the gospel, everything done in a way that um, fits with who you want to be. And so we're given, we're given some specifications of what actually counts as clothing of decorum, of what is a proper, proper adornment. And it gets defined negatively, right? It gets defined by what it's not, not gold and silver and so on. Um, a little bit. With modesty and self-control, and again, if you're used to the King James wording, you say modest clothing with blank and blank. Uh, most translations find the word modest fitting a little bit better here, and so they'll say in appropriate clothing with modesty and self-control or something like that. Um, think a little bit about these, this pair of words. Self-control is not simply brute willpower here. We can think of it as Discretion, wisdom, a sense of proportion, knowing what's important and what's not important, um, and all those things, which leads to moderation. But not moderation merely as, 
I've got lots of willpower, but moderation as I am a wise person who handles things in place. The word modesty, this is the only place it's used in the New Testament, so, and it's used a few other places. Sometimes I feel like the dictionaries are scrambling a little bit with how to define it, um, but again, it's a sense of the person of how you are how you are presenting yourself with modesty and self-control, which is presented through, obviously, clothing, but through the entire um, demeanor, demeanor of the person. Um, one way in would be to say, um, some of the older translations use words here with shame in the root. Um, now, I suspect most of us have a hard time understanding why they would use a word like shamefacedness or shamefastness which you probably never heard if, it wasn't, if you weren't reading the American Standard Version or something. Um, but the shame root in older translations, it's not the idea of being shameful. The shame root is the idea, it's the opposite of shameless. If you think about somebody who's shameless, right? they'll do anything without regard for propriety, like, well, nothing's going to make me ashamed. I'll do absolutely anything with no sensibilities. Um, so the shame root in a word like shamefacedness, is there in the sense of having the good sense not to do something that's shameful or whatever. Not shameless, not impudent, not, impudent, not inappropriately forward or whatever, but with, with again, that proper sense. Um, these terms, by the way, tie right into the description of bishops and overseers. Um, Self-control, listed as a qualification of the overseer. Clothing of decorum or modest apparel, respectable apparel. Well, that shows up. An overseer must be respectable. So there it's talking about clothing, but the same word can be used to describe the character of your life. So if you're looking for a hook, you know, if you have to be thinking about ordination or something like that, ask if the man's clothing matches the character, ask if the man's character matches his wife's clothing. <laughs> Whatever. And again, it's, it's a whole thing of the respectable and presentation. Okay, to adorn themselves. And we come to the end of the passage, but the very significant end of the passage. He says, not with certain things. Um, let's list them here so uh, somebody pop them off and we'll write them up. Not with four items. Braided hair. Gold, silver, costly apparel. What's the unifying factor here? Money. Money. 
Not that expensive to braid hair. <laughs> yeah, so there's several things to think about. People often think about, well, the braided hair was braided with these things braided in it or whatever, and that's where the money came in. Or the fact, back to our slave market, that if you had elaborate braids, it was probably done by a slave. And you do kind of have to be, you know, if you have slaves working for you, that kind of puts you in a power, a position of economic power. So yeah, one way or another, the unifying factor seems to be wealth. And that's where there's the um, categorical no. Uh, as one commentator put it, this is the opposite of conspicuous consumption. So, back to the beginning. Whatever dignified means, when it says live a dignified life, it does not mean lead a life of conspicuous consumption. Oh, categorically, categorically pushes those out. Um, but with good works. And there we finally get to the thrust. And I want to take us just a couple minutes there. Good works, so doing things that are good, things that are helpful. So, first of all, where's your time and energy going? And that is part of it. Time and energy going to things that are helpful to those under your care and a wider world. Not to conspicuous consumption and conspicuous display. Um, and if you can stick with this for just a few minutes here, we'll end with encouragement here. First Timothy 5, qualifications for the enrolled widow. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, and we get a definition. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And then the idea is these widows are enrolled to act on behalf of the church. There's a really important pattern there. And again, I don't know what you think of when you think of good works. But there's a pattern there of it starts with the things close in the grunt work of life and expands out as God gives you opportunity, right? If she has brought up children, guess what? That's a lot of work. <laughs> Probably don't need to tell that to anybody here, right? You know, it starts there right in the middle of it. And as God's servant, that's part of assignment for many of us in a stage of, certain stage of life, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted. They keep expanding outward. And eventually, on the other side of age 60, this woman might get the opportunity to do that service on behalf of the church. But it started with the much more private and hidden things and serving where they are. And that's work for your master, the master who ransomed us. Um, so just to take that as 
encouragement, we have different spheres of work and they can change rapidly. If you're driving home today and you're get in a car accident and your spouse is paralyzed, guess what? The focus of your good works for the next, de the next decades has changed dramatically. And sometimes we get to choose and sometimes we don't, right? And sometimes we end up being the ones who need care and sometimes we wish we could be doing things that are in the public eye and we need to spend all our time in the private eye. Sometimes we might wish we could be caring for our own children and we don't have our own children to care for and we're doing other things. Um, but really, living ransomed, living with God's identity, living as God's servant, right, it does come down to what are you doing where God has called you and it's expans an expansive thing you start with the things right in front of you. You expand out as you're able. But we don't necessarily get to choose the circle. Sometimes we do. Um, we do good as we have opportunity. And we don't give up because God, your master, will reward you. <laughs>